The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Surface. Well, good morning, my Voice America listeners, and welcome back to another Solutions and Strategies, taking on the challenge with Dr. Sean. I do hope over the last week you've been able to reflect on some of your great successes that you've had while you've been working through those number of daily challenges. That's what we're about around here, celebrating successes. It's so easy for us to slip into a situation of problem admiration, but instead we'll be success admirers. So I'm really very excited about today's show. Um, I've been excited about the shows we've been having. Our listener base is growing. Uh, Last week and the week before, we had Leanne Brown talking about school services. Before that, we had Augie and Lindsay talking to us about behavioral services. We had an attorney talking to us about special ed law. And today, I'm very happy that we're going to have Drs. Michelle Wallace and Randy Campbell of Cal State LA uh, on on the show, um, we will be discussing training programs and, and what they envision for their students in the future of support services for individuals with disabilities. We will um, next week be talking with some health ef- experts in regards to sports and recreation and leisure. The week after that, or within a couple weeks of that, we're going to be speaking to the uh, CAST, the California Association of School Psychologists President and the Executive Director of that office, Tom Sopp and Heidi Humblad. So we're, we're excited. So Dr. Wallace and, and Campbell are going to join us in the second segment today. I want to share a bit of history about our educational system. In past shows, you know, I've discussed the need for training programs and educational programs for individuals with disabilities that came through the Rehabilitation Act 504 after World War I, and then further regulated by Wyatt, the Wyatt-Stickney Act. Now, if we remember, the Wyatt-Stickney Act was the act that said no longer can we just do what's called custodial work for individuals with disabilities, making sure that they're fed, dressed, and cleaned. We also need to give them a purposeful life and have something to do that's productive. So programs began. Now, there was a boom in births, actually. So let's take a step back. There was a boom in births after the Civil War. A huge population change occurred in California, and we're going to be mostly focusing on California today because Drs. Wallace and Campbell are professors at Cal State Los Angeles, which is a um, uh, one of the Cal State uh, universities. So we're going to focus mostly on, on our California programs. Um, though we do have people across the nation listening, there are similarities to what your colleges and how those colleges were developed to. Um, 
So, again, big boom, big population boom between 1850 and 1900, kind of after the, the Civil War, after the, uh, the gold rush. So schools, small and large, urban and rural, were popping up like all over the place. And in fact, throughout the United States, there was a tendency to open up what was called normal schools. And now this is kind of interesting. A normal school is a teacher training school. And they were, they were all over the United States. The first one opening up in New York and moving its way across the United States. So the normal schools were a program f primarily for women who wanted to be teachers to teach typical kids between the ages of, at that point, between the ages of seven or eight and 16. Um, we really just had elementary and middle school type of programs, kind of like a kindergarten through eighth grade. So today's California State University system is a direct descendant of the Minas Evening Normal School. A normal school that started in San Francisco and educated the city's future teachers in association with high school with the high school system. The school was taken over by the state in 1862 and was moved to San Jose and it was named the California State Normal School. It eventually evolved into San Jose State University. Now at the same time a southern branch of the California State Normal School was created in Los Angeles in 1882. In 1887 the California legislature dropped the word California from the name of San Jose and the Los Angeles schools and just renaming them state normal schools. Later, Chico in 1887, San Diego 1897, and other schools became part of the state normal schools. In 1919, the state normal school at Los Angeles became the southern branch of the University of California. In 1927, it became the University of California at Los Angeles. The at was later replaced with a comma in 1958. So in May of 1921, the legislature enacted a comprehensive reform package for the state's educational system, which went into effect in July. They wanted these state normal schools to be renamed state teacher colleges. And their boards of trustees were dis dissolved and they brought under the supervision of the Division of Normal and Special Schools of the New California Department of Education, which was located in, in Sacramento. This meant that they were to be managed from Sacramento by a deputy director of the division, who in turn was under the state superintendent of education and the state board of education. By this time, it was already commonplace to refer to most campuses with their city names, plus the words like San Jose State or San Diego State or San Francisco State. So sorry. On the other hand, whoop, oh, I've lost my spot. Oh, excuse me. Okay, so on the other hand, the Department of Education's actual supervision of presidents of the state teachers' colleges were rather minimal, which was translated into substantial autonomy when it came to day-to-day -day operations. Each one of these schools was doing their own thing. There was no regulations. There was no specific way to do things, so they kind of each did it their own way. On the other hand, the state teachers' colleges were treated under the state law as ordinary state agencies, which meant that their budgets were subject to the same stifling bureaucratic financial controls as, other, as the other state agencies, except for the state, except for the University of California. At least one president would depart his state college because he was so frustrated, and his name was Paul Leonard, and he was president of San Francisco State in the 1950s. 
he was frustrated because there was no continuum of programming in the colleges. And there was a lot of arguing between the UC system and the new state teacher colleges because the new state teacher colleges, they started to transition from normal schools. That is like vocational schools, like narrowly focused on training of elementary school teachers and how to impart basic literacy into young children into teachers' colleges that provided full-on, full um liberal arts programs and whose graduates would be fully qualified to teach all K later through 12th grade. A leading proponent of this idea was a guy by the name of Charles McLean, and he was the first president of Fresno State. He was the one of the earliest people to argue that K-12 teachers must have a board, a broad liberal arts education. In 1932, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching was asked by the state legislature and the governor to perform a, a study of California higher ed. The foundation's 1933 report sharply criticized the state teachers' colleges for their intrusion upon UC's liberal arts prerogative and recommended their transfer to the regents of the University of California, who would be expected to put them back in their proper place. This recommendation spectacularly backfired when the faculties and the administrations of the state colleges rallied to protect their independence from the regions. In 1935, the state teachers' colleges were formally upgraded by the state legislature to state colleges and were expressly authorized to offer a full four-year liberal arts curriculum, culminating in a, in a bachelor's degree. But they remained under the Department of Education. During World War II, a group of Santa Barbara leaders and business promoters uh, were able to convince the state legislature and the governor to transfer Santa Barbara State College to the University of California in 1944. After losing a second campus to the UCs, the state college supporters arranged for a state constitution to be amended in 1946 to stop and from ever stop it from ever happening again. Everybody was trying to get good campuses. Everybody was trying to get good sites to have their students at, and. There was a lot of competition, and the UC system kept swooping them all up. So in '46, there was a law that was passed that said, hey, you can no longer do this. The period after World War II brought great expansion to a number of college campuses. Campuses in Los Angeles, Sacramento, Long Beach were added in 1947 and 49. The next seven more schools were authorized and established between 57 and 1960. Six more campuses joined the system after the enactment of the Donahoe Higher Education Act in 1960, bringing the total number of Cal States to 23. During this era, the state college's peculiar mix of centralization and decentralization began to look at rather, uh, to look at a, a comparison to the highly centralized University of California and the highly decentralized local school districts around the state, which operated K-12 schools and junior colleges, all of which enjoyed much more autonomy for the rest of the state government than the state colleges. In 1960, the California Master Plan for Higher Education and the resulting Donahue Act granted similar autonomy to the college, state college system. The Donahue Act authorized the appointment of a board of trustees to govern the CSU system, as well as a system-wide chancellor. In 1972, the system became the California State University and Colleges, and all the campuses were renamed to insert California State University into their names. There was an 
this was unpopular at certain campuses, and as a result, former San Diego State University student body president Calvin Robinson at the time wrote a bill signed it into law signed into law by the state governor that gave every CSU campus the option to revert to an older name, for example, San Jose State, San Diego State, San Francisco State. In 1982, the Cal State University system dropped the word colleges from its name. Today, the campuses of the Cal State system include comprehensive universities and polytechnic universities, along with a maritime academy in the West, oh, excuse me, along with the only maritime academy in the Western United States, uh, one that would receive aid from the U.S. Maritime Administration. Now, with the passage of PL 94-142, and if you remember, what that is, is that's the first special ed law. And later, IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, training programs for special education teachers and specialists began to open through the Cal, throughout the state, and, the Cal state, and Cal State LA started programs in rehabilitation, started programs in special education, psychology, and eventually applied behavior analysis. Applied Behavior Analysis, we also call it ABA. The ABA program has grown substantially since Dr. Campbell joined the faculty in 1990, and later Dr. Wallace joined in the last decade, and we were very excited to talk with them next about their own histories and their visions for their current graduate students. It's very, very common for uh, programs to come about when uh, laws are put into place. And one of the things that happened over the last 20 years is that there was a reduction in what was allowed in, in schools in regards to aversive techniques, let's call it that. Uh, something happened at a private school where a child who was acting out um, and being very physically violent uh, was actually wrapped up in a, a rug to, to contain the kiddo and driven home wrapped up in this rug uh, in the back of a bus. Well, the child passed away. And Teresa Hughes, who was a state senator at the time, um, decided to get a law passed, which later became known as the Hughes Bill, which no longer allowed for any type of aversive uh, punishment, uh, physical action to take place against people with disabilities or any, any students in the school setting. It also stated that any student in special education with a individualized education plan needed to have a, if they had behavioral incidents that were occurring, that were interfering with their, the implementation of their school program, that something called a functional analysis of their behavior was required. And what that was, was to determine what, why the individual was acting in the way that they were and what could be put into place to help the individual and support them through their not only aggressive behavior, but to teach them new skills to use instead. That functional analysis has become very well used. It has been used throughout the United States. 
it's a way again of looking at the function behind the behavior but people need to be trained in order to do this this is not an easy thing to do so behavioral programs started uh, appearing throughout the United States um, the a, a good foundational program started at the University of South Florida where actually Dr. Wallace attended school and a professor by the name of Brian Iwata uh, who actually studied self-injurious types of behavior for many, many years, like 40, 40 years, uh, used a functional analysis to determine why people were engaging in self-injurious behavior and coming up with interventions to uh, assist those people. So we're now... Uh, using the functional analyses all the time. And what we also use the functional analyses for is to determine why things are going the right way. There is a professor at Cal State Northridge by the name of Alberto Ristori. And Alberto did his dissertation on using the functional analysis to determine why good things are happening and how to keep them happening. So what this meant was we needed to have people trained in the behavioral world, we needed to have people certified in just about the year, I would say about 2006, all of the local government agencies through the Department of Human and Health Services, otherwise known as the regional centers, uh, required all behaviorists to have a board certification as a behavior analyst, whether that was on the national basis or that was the board certification. Um, so. Uh, many programs have opened, including the program at Cal State LA, which already existed through the psychology department, but was uh, not as, as much utilized as it is now. There were very few students in the program prior to the year 2000. Now it is a very impacted program where many students are doing whatever they can to try and get in. And I've had the joy of teaching in the program and teaching alongside of Drs. Campbell and Wallace. In fact, Dr. Campbell was one of my professors when I first went to Cal State LA, way back when. So we're really looking forward to having discussion with them. We will uh, need to take a break here in a couple of seconds and we'll be back to discuss kind of the where their interests are in special education and what they're about. So I look forward to seeing you guys back here in a couple minutes. Go get a cup of coffee and we'll see you on the return. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to solutions and strategies with dr sean living the challenge we'd love to encourage your participation in the program call into 1-866-472-5792 again that's 1-866-472-5792 you may also send an email to sean surface at totalprograms.org now back to this week's show Well, welcome back, everybody. I hope you got your cup of coffee and you're sitting relaxing, listening to our show. Very happy to welcome on to the program Dr. Michelle Wallace and Dr. Randy Campbell. Dr. Wallace earned her doctorate degree at the University of Florida in 2000 in experimental analysis of behavior. She's a full professor and ABA coordinator. Again, remember, ABA is Applied Behavior Analysis, the coordinator at Cal State Los Angeles, Dr. Wallace is a, on the board of edit, editors for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and is a current member of the Association for Behavior Analysis International and the California Association of Behavior Analysis, which she actually was president of, too. Um, she has been a board-certified behavior analyst in the state of Florida since 1993, a national board behavior analyst since 2000. Dr. Wallace provides consultation locally and across the United States and internationally and is co-director of the behavioral agency called BrainFit. Dr. Wallace is one of the authors of a premier textbook in behavior analysis, Behavior Analysis for Lasting Change, and the co-author of a new RBT textbook. RBT is Registered Behavior Therapist. It's a way of increasing the quality of our service providers. Uh, she's written a new RBT textbook, The Introduction of Applied Behavior Analysis for Behavior Therapists and Other Practitioners. She has over 13 first authored publications, 31 co-authored publications, and has presented at over 300 presentations. Her current research interests are related to the refinement of assessment and treatment methodologies with respect to behavior problems, parent and staff training, and the acquisition of verbal behavior and real-world application of applied behavior analysis, which is why I love her so much, because it's that real-world application that's so important. So welcome this morning, Dr. Wallace. Thank you very much, Sean. Yeah, and we Dr. also have... 
Thank you. We also have Dr. Randy Campbell with us, who I've known for many, many years and got a chance to work alongside of last semester, which was really a joy for me. He got his doctorate in rehabilitation in 1988 from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. He's been a full professor in the counseling program with the emphasis in applied behavior analysis at Cal State LA since 1991. Dr. Campbell is a current member of the Association of Behavior Analysis International and the California Association of Behavior Analysis. Actually, he's also been president of that organization. He has been a national board certified behavior analyst since 2000, and he provided consultation services locally and internationally. And he's guided many, many, many students towards success. So welcome this morning, Dr. Campbell. Thank you, Sean. So... I, uh, maybe we'll start with Michelle, if that's okay. Michelle, I, sure. I was talking this morning about kind of the history and how the schools opened for, to, to really teach practitioners and how later on certain regulations in regards to how students were treated in schools required certain uh, uh, behavioral techniques to be put into place, specifically that functional analysis. But tell me, where did you get your interest in education or disabilities? Why did you get into this type of work? So um, after I graduated with my undergraduate degree in psychology in um, 92, I was waiting to go to graduate school for, I wanted to um, become a neurobiologist and study the brain. Cool. And one of my behavioral professors um, that I took a course with suggested that I get my Florida certification in behavior analysis and that I work for a local agency providing applied behavior analysis services while I waited for graduate school. And so my first case that I ever had was a young boy who's about eight years old. Um, he had autism. He engaged in severe self-injurious behavior. Um, so he basically um, punched his face over and over again. Mm. And when I first started with him, he had a hockey helmet on his head and boxing gloves on his hands. Oh, poor and buddy, because that so interferes with somebody's dignity, too. Not only does yeah. it protect them, but the flip side of it is that that person's walking around looking very funky with a helmet and, and gloves kind of affecting their own dignity, too. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Right. No, that's okay. And um, you can imagine that it was interfering with his progress in school as well. So um, he was my first case out of undergraduate, and there was an assessment and intervention report in his um, case file, and there was, you know, this guy's name, Brian Iwata, had signed it, and mm -hmm. I didn't know really who he was, and so I started working with this kid, and um in six months, we had him out of his hockey helmet, no gloves, and not engaging in self-injurious behavior. He was actually communicating um, his wants and needs, wow. uh, using sign language. And so I withdrew all my applications. Uh, and actually, I got it accepted to graduate school for neurobiology. And mm -hmm. I withdrew my acceptance, and I contacted Brian Iwata and said that I wanted to learn from him. And so I waited a whole year for the next cycle and just, and went to work with Brian Iwata 
at the Florida Center for Self-Injurious Behavior, where I uh, was very uh, lucky to have learned from some of the top behavior analysts in the field, um, as well as working with some of the clients with the most severe behavior problems um, one could imagine. Yeah, were you able to, did Iwata actually help write a plan that helped you with this kiddo? Yes, so he had written the assessment and intervention plan, and we followed the intervention plan and um, tweaked it a little bit, but, um, and we're successful with him. Well, well, two things. One, I, I have heard that Dr. Iwata just had his last formal uh, uh, presentation this year that he is retiring after many years. Yeah. But the coolest thing is he created people like you, Michelle, these amazing, <laughs> amazing behaviorists that are going out into the world and teaching so many students. Um, Dr. Campbell, I, I want to ask you the same question. Where did your interest in special education and disabilities come from? Why did you get into this kind of work? Well, I was in doing my undergraduate at the University of Pacific, and when I was doing that, I was, I was a pre-med uh, uh, major, and at the time, I needed to take some electives, and I took a self-management class through with uh, Martin Gibson, who was yeah. in the psychology department, and he taught me some basic skills in applied behavior analysis, and I really enjoyed it, and so I went to his office and asked him how else could I get involved in this field, and he said, you know, if you're really interested, you should really take some additional classes, and at the time, the University of Pacific was just starting a, an undergraduate emphasis in applied behavior analysis, and mm. he hooked me up with um, Dr. John Lutzker, and I had took a class with Dr. Lutzker, and through that class, I started working at Stockton State Hospital um, working with some um, residents and trying to teach them basic, you know, self-help skills like dressing mm -hmm. and coding and, and doing things like that. And so I kind of like fell into it, just like Michelle did. And uh, what happened is I found myself really enjoying the field. And, and as I got to my senior year, I thought about going to graduate school, but, you know, I said, well, I'm not really qualified to go to graduate school because I'm just a, you know, I didn't think I was that great of a student. So what happened mm -hmm. is I uh, went back home and um, to Long Beach and started working at Fairview Developmental Center mm -hmm. um, and got hired there as a behavioral specialist, which was a very unusual position at the time. Sure. And, and what I did is I worked at Fairview Developmental Center as a behavioral specialist and and went throughout the whole um, facility and developed behavioral programs and started um, trying to change the uh, the culture of how people dealt with these these severe behavioral problems. And um, at at that time, they were going through desensitization and going through um, putting um, putting people waking people up who were under a lot of drugs and coming sure. awake and they didn't know what to do with it. So we were very, very busy, and um, lo and behold, I started getting better and better at my job, and um, Dr. John Lutzker called me up and said, would you be interested in going to a graduate program in Southern Illinois, that he was starting a new program there in child abuse and neglect and called Project 12 Ways, and 
at that yeah. time, I said, well, I guess that sounds like a good idea, not realizing it was a golden opportunity where they were going to pay my way and get me wow. into graduate school. So I just like, just like Michelle, I fell into a, a career that I fell in love with and started working and have done for over 40 years now. Well, it's interesting because so many of us had one idea of one direction we wanted to go in, either after our undergrad work or in the midst of it. Like I was going to be a, I wanted to be a psychologist that, you know, sat and did therapy and counseling and got a job while I was going to school trying to uh, just get myself through school and ended up working with a little kiddo with autism and fell in love with it. Like you just said, it's this passion that people have that do the best work and I have had the joy of not only being one of your students Randy but I have had the joy of hiring many 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 of your grads and I will say that what you have taught them and the kind of person you have taught them to be is the most highly respectable individual around and I can't thank you more for devoting your life to doing this work because it reflects right out onto your students. So, well, I so think I that's think- the dedication that people have in the field of behavior analysis. I, I, I appreciate your words of kindness, but I think the people who donate their lives or take on this, 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 this venture is people who really are trying to help people. Uh, the whole mm-hmm. idea is to maximize people's potentials and work with individuals to make sure that they have a a high quality of life and trying to to try to straighten out some misgivings that might have happened in the past. And I think the field has really grown in the last 15 years where you're seeing more and more people. Like now people are actually in undergraduates knowing they want to be behavioral specialists. And just like Michelle and myself, probably when we started doing this, there wasn't really that kind of a need. There wasn't People weren't thinking about this as a, a new career, and the field has really grown, and, and, and I have to thank you and other people like yourself, Sean, that have these large agencies that have been able to provide these excellent services to a, a, a population that desperately needs this type of services. Yeah, well, you're very welcome, but it is a, it's very, very different. It's not a job. It's a career. It's a life choice, mm-hmm. and when we interview people, we want to hear, why do you want to do this? And if they start talking about, well, I need a job to get a car, I'm trying to pay for my house, whatever, that's all very important stuff, but that doesn't demonstrate to us that respect for the individual disability that we're looking for. So, yeah, a lot of people that come into our programs, or excuse me, come into total programs, um, are maybe without a bachelor's degree in the beginning or out without a master's, and... We have about a 75% rate of getting people who were not in a in any educational program in a program and graduated. I've had people wow. that have gotten their masters after, you know, 20 20 20 plus years of working and not having the chance to have education. So, and I do my best to send as many as I can to the two of you. <laughs> Michelle, what well, do you, you see? We appreciate that. What what do you see, Michelle, as the current needs for special education students in schools at home? Not your grad students, but the actual, the, the kids that we're working with. What do you see as their current needs? I think, um, 
you know, I live in a utopia where I would love to see every child get as much services as they can to where you can just change the trajectory of their life. And so I would really like to see that children in schools and homes are really getting these services, especially related to problem behaviors. And unfortunately, as you mentioned in your discussion, the use bill recently um, was was removed. And so I'm actually starting to see school districts claim that they don't need to do a functional analysis anymore because the use bill is no longer in place. And that makes me um, uh, concerned in the sense that we know that if we try to treat behavior problems without understanding the underlying cause of that behavior problem, that it's basically we might as well put a bunch of treatments on on a wall and just uh, blindfold ourselves and throw darts and whichever, you know, intervention the dart lands on, implement, um, which can make the behavior problem worse. So I think... My number one concern right now is is I really w- would hate for us to go down this road of um, not doing functional analyses just because there's uh, not a law that's stating that we have to do them. Right. Um, because it's, in, in reality, in, go ahead. regardless of whether there's a law, it is best practice. Right. It's a highly useful tool that allows us to understand the individual. Understand. I don't even, and I talked about this on the show before, I don't actually even believe in behavior problems. I believe in advocacy issues, that the person has self-advocacy problems, therefore they can't communicate it, they can't get out the thoughts, so they will quote-unquote act out. And the acting out commonly is misunderstood because it's only looked at uh, what we would call the form, what it looks like, rather than right. why is it happening. It's very easy to describe a behavior. You know, he hits he hits three times in the head, he breaks three windows, whatever it is, but the why behind it. Mm-hmm. And this is why Senator Hughes put the, the law into place in the first place. Unfortunately, what's even sadder, Michelle, is that the reason why they have dropped the functional analyses is that the California Department of Education used to reimburse people, used to reimburse districts for functional analyses that were done or residential programs that came from, or some programs that came from the functional analyses. And when the Hughes bill dropped, it dropped that funding also. Mm-hmm. So now people are just seeing it as a, an extra expense. And what they're not seeing it and not realizing is that it's a, a tool that was created 30, 40 years ago to assist in the most challenging problems because people often react to physical challenging problems with more physicalness. Mm-hmm. And, right. And that physicality and those interactions, unfortunately, commonly teach our kids just to become more physical themselves. It's funny. Mm-hmm. It, Our discussion is so wonderful. I've got to give us a little break here for a minute. We've come to our second break time. So we will be back in just about three minutes and talk a bit more about uh, students and, and special education programming.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. We all have challenges each and every day. How do you relax and live in a calm state? On Chaos to Calm, we introduce you to the concept of Wrenchway, a path to feeling calmer and happier. Listen Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, welcome back, Michelle and Randy. Um, we've been discussing uh, not only student services and applied behavior analysis programming, but we were left off our conversation discussing the fact that the functional assessment and the Hughes bill itself, which didn't allow for aversives to take place in schools, has been was not reauthorized. And it was not reauthorized, unfortunately, because uh, it costs money. And during the time of our budget crunch, it was one of the things that was thought to not be needed. However, as Michelle has said, this thing, this the functional analysis is a tool. Whether it is uh, uh, regulated by law or not, it's a, t- a very useful tool. Randy, why don't you chime in on this a bit? What do you What do you think about the fact now that this one thing that the state is saying, "Oh no, you don't need to do this any longer"? What might come from that? Yeah, because you're not doing a you're not doing a full assessment. You're only doing a partial assessment, and just the fact. I think that the ethics may not specifically talk about the functional analysis, but say that the assessment has to give information that is fully useful, and it can't be, can't be without the use of of all the tools. 
behavioral uh, assessment is to be able to know what the function of the behavior is and what's the underlying cause of these behaviors and going in. It's just like going to a doctor and the doctor is saying, oh, you have a pain here and we're going to open you up and find out what's going on in there without doing any kind of medical tests. And then, right. Um, without doing x-rays, without doing blood work, without doing any kind of those, those scans well, so to know exactly what's causing the problem. You know, it's just really short-sightedness of the government to do something like this where they're thinking that, well, why don't you just do the intervention? Well, every individual is unique, and every individual has a unique problem, and we, you need to treat it that way, um, and you need to treat them with dignity and respect for what their issues are. And if you don't do a, a behavioral assessment, you don't know what those issues are. So it's really short-sightedness on the government. Uh, and we've never seen that, have we? We've never seen the government be short-sighted on things. Unfortunately, it affects so many things, including all of our programs out there. There are a lot of programs that opened up over the last, I would say, five years. Maybe I'll say ten, but really over the last five, six years, online programs, uh, other universities opening up what they're calling applied behavior analysis programs and and my concern is that they'll start leaving things out because they're not regulated, like the functional analysis. I couldn't imagine a behavioral program, but in discussing uh, uh, training with a couple of potential employees that had graduated from some of the online programs, asking them to turn in functional analyses and functional assessments for us to review, they had said they had never done one. Well, but they have I think a full that's a, yeah, that's really a problem. I I'm really proud of our our university and our program at our at Cal State LA due to the fact that we are accredited by the International Association for Behavioral Analysis, and we also meet the, the national standard for being able to to take the, uh, the the certification exam in behavioral analysis. And I think because of that, I think any of the individuals who are are interested in going in the field need to make sure that whatever university they go to have those kind of standards because you know you're going to a, a university that is high quality. I, and there are quite a few out there. I'm, we're not the only ones out there. I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but I'm saying that you've got to go where, the, where, the, where there's quality education because with quality education, you're going to get quality individuals. And, and you want to make sure the individuals are working with this very severe need population that has severe problems are, are qualified. I mean, that's the worst right. thing to do is put, put people out there who's not qualified to work with a needy population, and that's where you will see abuse and neglect happen, and that's, sure. that's the last thing we want to happen. And these people want... And yeah, wait, wait, I was just going to say one quick thing. These people want to do this work, but if they aren't trained appropriately, then they're going to get into a situation that they can't handle, and then it's going to burn them out from the job, and they're not going to stick with it. So it's so important to get that training so that you do, in a sense, know what you're doing when you get into very difficult situations. Michelle, please go ahead. And one thing I was going to say, which um, I'm very proud of in our program that we do is we don't just train our graduate students on the procedural application of functional analysis. We actually train them on the conceptualization that went into the development of the functional analysis by Iwata. So, for example, um, yeah, talk you know, to me more in about science, that. In, in Science and Human Behavior by Skinner, 
in the very first chapter, he talks about how if we want to understand behavior and we want to be able to change behavior, we really have to have an underlying understanding of what is causing behavior, good or bad. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, and I, I don't like to use the word bad behavior because I don't really believe that. But yeah, whether it'd be unwanted, what, undesired. Yeah, right. Um, so really understanding that conceptualization of a functional analysis, I really truly believe makes a better behavior analyst because it, it pushes the bar from just applying the tool or the procedure to actually understanding, okay, here is this, this situation that I've dealt with. How can I best understand this individual at this particular moment in this particular context and, and what kind of procedure should I be um, actually applying? So, because in the functional analysis, is a very broad category. There are many different ways to do a functional analysis. Sure. Um, and, and the research has really exploded, I would say, over the last 10 years for developing different modifications to the functional analysis. But without that understanding of the conceptualization, I think you're just kind of going through the motions and you don't really know what you're doing or why you're doing it or um, what to do if something goes a little different. Right. We really, we really strive in our program to bring the um, uh, conceptualization or theoretical aspects of behavior analysis plus the experimental analysis of behavior, which is more the um, laws and uh, principles and, and the applied portion all together so that we have a really well-rounded student who can go into any situation and really understand that individual and that individual's behavioral needs. Absolutely. We want to focus our graduate students on getting them to understand a person through these right. techniques of either functional analyses or other observational techniques, but the functional analysis allows us in a safe situation, the classroom, the home, to set up a situation, to set up the environment a little bit differently and see if it makes a difference. See if we right. put something into place, does it make any change? Does it make a positive, put us in a positive direction? And the coolest part is that if it doesn't, we can move on to something else. We can look at another technique. We can look at another intervention. We don't have to be stuck on on one or two different types of interventions. I unfortunately uh, hear quite often, you know, the same interventions being used over and over again. Okay, we're going to use uh, okay. token economy system. We're going to use PECS, you know. And PECS is the picture exchange communication system, a way of communicating. And that may help. Some individuals, but not all. And and then you have, you know, you see in the assessments that things remain the same from client to client. And why is that? Because they haven't gotten the instruction on a multitude of different types of invent- uh, interventions. I've been amazed mm-hmm. with what Cal State LA has done. And I even saw an ad for another university that mentioned Cal State LA, but how did they mention Cal State LA? You can get through our program in half the time that you could get through Cal State LA. And I thought, wow, that's not a positive. That time, that two-year period, which is nothing compared to a 20- or 30-year career, 
that short amount of time is where you have the the time to learn, learn from others that have been doing this in the field. You know, people will say, frankly, and I'll say this to the audience, people will say to the three of us, wow, you're such a great professor. I've learned so much from you. Why? Because we give them real things to do. We give them real, you know, even quite often we'll see master's thesis or doctoral dissertations that are very, I just want to say pie in the sky. They don't really give you immediate intervention. I've had the joy of sitting in on a couple of your graduate students' thesis uh, uh, um, uh, conversations, and what they have come out with is so professional and so helpful. And then I've seen these same people turn into wonderful practitioners. What do you guys see as the as the state policies are changing for good or bad, your focus still remains on your grad students. What would, we have like three minutes left of the show, unfortunately, but what, if you could say one thing, Randy, that you would like your graduate students to walk away from, with, from your program, what might that be? I think just having the tools to be able to do a, a behavioral assessment, being able to, understand why behaviors occur and from what and how to develop a, a, a effective or, or, or evidence-based intervention based upon the knowledge of what, what their behavioral assessment indicates that they need to do. I think that's a critical aspect. And having the versatility to actually look at a variety of different interventions because every problem had there's a different angles and a different way to address it. It doesn't have to be a set program. Right. I'll let Michelle talk about her. Yeah, and Michelle, the same kind of question. Where, where do you see the focus? I, I really hope that we spark that love for behavior analysis and, and behavioral science um, so that our students realize that they are lifelong learners of behavioral science. You know, I still view myself as um, learning every day. So I, I hope that that's what we spark in our students so that they can go beyond just being a professional, you know, board-certified behavior analyst, but that they really love the behavioral science and, and I really, live their I life. Li- go ahead. Sorry. And live their life that way. Yeah. You know, I really love the fact that the your program, the first couple courses are ethics and then counseling. Prior to really uh-huh. even getting into the deep technologies of ABA, which people commonly say that behaviors are kind of emo- don't have the same emotion, don't have the same care for their client, and we do. We just use very scientifically related technologies, but at the same time, we we teach our students to be feeling loving individuals too, so that they can uh-huh. assist people when things get really rough because you got to stick around. You know, I talk about our st- our staff and people as being what's a Buddhist term, bodhisattva. The bodhisattva is the warrior helper, that person that comes in to help no matter what happens and how hard, no matter how hard it is. Guys, it's been really wonderful having you on the show. I want to thank you very, very much. And maybe we can have you guys on again if you'd be willing in the future. All right. Sure. Thank, Thank you very you much, so much, Sean. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Thank you. Remember that on Strategies and Solutions, Taking on the Challenge with Dr. Sean, we're about your success and know that each day can be a new feature you dream of having in your life. See you next time. Blessings. Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.